Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, host of the Black Hall Studios podcast from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm an entrepreneur, mostly by necessity because I have massive authority issues, and also by constitution as the entrepreneurial life is filled with things I love, freedom, adventure, creativity, and imagination. I built Black Hall Studios as a specialty real estate project for production giants like Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers, and Universal to have a place to apply their skilled craft of production. I'm from Los Angeles, but I moved to Atlanta six years ago. I've done business all over the world, and I know a few places with the dynamism of Atlanta. On this podcast, we get local and global and talk to people who are inspirational, sensational, sometimes motivational, but at all times somehow tied to the ecosystem that is the culture and business of entertainment as it relates to Black Hall Studios. Joel Stein is a dichotomy of sorts. His career had a less than auspicious beginning as a writer for Martha Stewart Living, where she reportedly fired him twice in one day. And for 20 years, he wrote a regular humor column for Time Magazine, not noted for being one of your funnier publications. Along the way, he became a Boy Scout at age 39, took Paul Rudd to a bar to find a straight man to date, invited George Clooney to his house for dinner, covered Joe Biden in 2008, and crafted a cover story on Michael Jordan. That's versatility. He wrote 22 cover stories for Time, has five failed television pilots under his belt. He's contributed to The New Yorker, GQ, The Los Angeles Times, Men's Health, and appeared on The Today Show, Nightline, VH1, just about any show that asks him. And he has a really funny take on Real Time with Bill Maher. A favorite Stein quote, I'm all in for a little high school bullying. You don't become a successful humor columnist without it. If it weren't for bullying, I'd be a contract lawyer. He's also a bit of an anarchist, trying to join our conference call in stealth mode, just to listen in on our conversation. My kind of guy. He'll tell us about his new book, In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You, and You're Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. Joel Stein is a talented writer, a reluctant philosopher, and a funny man. All in all, a fantastic conversation coming up on the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm super excited about this interview with Joel Stein. He sounds like a fun guy. When he comes to Atlanta, I want to do a program with you and him. I love it. About, enter- about entertainment. But I think that we should absolutely talk about people. Like with Joel, it took two days. Yeah. He got right back to me, which I love. I'm going to call Joel Sell to make sure. Or should I give him a minute? He's not late yet. It's 1259. <laughs> Let's see. Joel, Joel, Joel. I was just laughing at this book on elitism. Oh, my God. I think that is a blast. That's amazing. I have enough Ayn Rand philosophy <laughs> in me to, to believe that if the elites disappear, that everything falls apart. 
not hard to convince me that there that there are layers of society. Right. Not philosophically, like. There he is. Uh, hey, I was just gonna try and listen in and find out what you guys talk about. I love that. <laughs> we we're just talking about your book, which I have not read, but you know, but I just love the title. And oh, I'll read it out loud to you now. The whole thing. Right, please. That's amazing. <laughs> You've got time. I would love that. Kidding? I'll do that in a nice bedtime voice. I did it for the audiobook, so I have a little practice. <laughs> we love that. So I'm going to mute, and Ryan, take it away. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. Today, we are lucky. We've got Joel Stein, author, comedian, scriptwriter, extraordinaire. Joel, welcome to the program. Oh my, my, this is, uh, this is quite an honor, especially I've never, I've only been on a stage for stand up once for a story. So I can't call myself a comedian because it did not go well. But other than that, <laughs> the, all the extraordinary part is correct. You know, all of the, the world of ideas, if you can live in that world and survive, you're extraordinary. Oh, well, and then uh, many of us are extraordinary right now just for surviving. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, well, one of the things that we were talking about before we started this, was this notion of elitism that you wrote an entire book about in defense of elitism. Share with the people listening a little bit about what that means to you. Well, let me first define uh, the kind of elitism I'm talking about, which I get into about probably halfway through the book. What I would call intellectual elites versus what I later call the boat elites. So I'm not talking about the 1% that, that Bernie likes to yell about. Uh, by the elite, I'm talking about uh, the same way that like Sarah Palin or Rush Limbaugh defines the elite, which are people in government, in the media, in academics, uh, who kind of are more interested. The way I describe it in the book is in my people are far less interested in owning a yacht than in giving a TED talk. So it's it's people who compete in the world of kind of status and uh, ideas and influence. And how do you defend that? Oh, uh, <laughs> I defend, <laughs> that's a, gr a great question. Um, so I defend that by, uh, by the last three and a half years. I defend that by what's going on right now and who we're choosing to listen to during this pandemic. Or I think most of us are, are not looking to people who think they know in their gut how many ventilators each hospital should have. Um, maybe that's a bad example because ventilators aren't proving to be that useful, but we're not, we're not talking about people who in their gut just kind of think if disinfectants work on packages, maybe they'll work in your body. We're, <laughs> le we're leaning more on people with real expertise in immunology. Uh, you know, the people who have studied these things. I mean, my book is not just about politics. It's about the fact that when you go to the doctor and you read, you know, looked up your symptoms on WebMD, and then you argue with your doctor who tells you you're wrong and you don't have cancer. And you, you're kind of throwing away the fact that they went to medical school and they've seen thousands of patients. You're making a really bad mistake. And then when things get bad, like you have cancer, you go and look real carefully at those framed diplomas on the wall. And when things get serious like they are now, I think people realize how important expertise is and how people who say they just know from their gut the right thing to do are not the people to follow. Well, how does this fit together with the ideas of Ayn Rand? Probably not. I've never, I've tried to read one of those novels and failed. Um, mm -hmm. But the libertarianism in general def definitely is less about cooperation and globalization. 
And uh, in general, that hasn't um, proven as effective. We're, we're a very communal species. That's kind of how we've survived, and that's how we've succeeded so well on this planet, much like ants, the other hugely communal species. So, it, it's, I mean, my book is not about libertarianism. In fact, the one person I spend time with in the book who used to be a libertarian, which is Tucker Carlson, isn't anymore. So, um, no, it's not about like economics and politics that way. It's more about the death of expertise. Well, and that's what it really – what I'm thinking about with Anne is Anne makes the argument in her book, Atlas Shrugged, that if the one percenters in the way that you're describing it, the elite, the intellectual elite, the real thinkers, the people that are dealing with reality at the deepest sense, whatever that is, spiritually, uh, in physics, um, in medicine, etc., if that one percent were to disappear or just say, I'm out, yeah. then society falls apart. Yeah, right. I mean, it's 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 the moments like this when you need that intellectual elite. You need an Anthony Fauci to come out and say, "Hey, this is what's going on," and everybody starts to go, "Wait a minute, that guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about." Yeah, especially if you've organized a a pretty complicated society, like the people who are saying this moment has proven that nationalism is correct because we didn't have all of the ventilators we needed, and and we we had to buy stuff from China. I think are missing the point of globalization. The point is, what if a French company develops a vaccine? And what if a Chinese factory can pump out syringes much more quickly? Then we're much more interested in globalization. And, and being able to do everything yourself has really led a lot of countries way backwards. Like in, in Brazil, when they wouldn't let anyone make cell phones outside of their country, and I believe they're still on Blackberries over there. So, yes, I think if you, in an increasingly complicated society where none of us understand most of the things we use every day, like I know we're all at home now, we're learning to cook, um, but even that was a kind of skill that was going away. And we're all really, really dependent on the, the technical expertise of each other. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried that a lot of people want to throw that away. That's so true. You know, we, we, we talk about how if everybody on the planet who knew how to do a heart surgery disappeared, how long would it take us? How many years, generations would it take us to be able to do heart surgery again? Oh, now, I know. I can't, right. like, if, if, if you sent me, you know, backwards in time, and I, I you know, cockily thought I had all this knowledge just from being in the 21st century... And the first thing they asked me to do was, like, build a bridge over a stream. I'd have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I went to a really yeah, good college. I've, you know, I've met, I've been to really important conferences. I have no idea how to build a bridge, like a basic footbridge. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the same analogy with the heart surgeon actually applies to concrete. So if everybody on the oh, planet man. who actually knew about concrete, like really knew about it, disappeared – how many generations would it take us to get back to a place where we could build skyscrapers or do we bridges? Still have, do we still have the YouTube videos on how to make concrete? You no, know, you don't get any oh, of that. Oh, man. All that stuff disappears. We're starting from scratch, right? Oh. We're not, you don't get to build on any of the expertise. You don't even know where to mine this stuff. You don't even know where the Portland cement comes from or how to get it out of the ground. By the way, when you threw in mining, you were already way beyond my knowledge of concrete. I didn't know yeah. where the mining had to take place. <laughs> No, I mean, their entire Portland cement um, mines that 
grind away to create the base that then rocks at it, et cetera, whatever. All cement comes from Portland, Oregon, is what I just learned. <laughs> and that's amazing. That's a fact all your listeners should throw out because that, that's great at parties. God, the people, parties. In Portland, the people in Portland are going to be so pissed. You don't think they're... of Portland that way either with all those like hipsters and yeah. I don't, I, I, but how, how did Portland get built? I never thought about it. Clearly concrete mining. Yeah, from Portland cement. Yeah. Tell me about some of your background in philosophy and ideas. I mean, clearly, tell me what you studied, how you got interested in kind of the global idea chain. Just give me some of that intellectual history oh, for yourself. Yeah. So I, I, I'm the last person who should be writing a book like this. Like in normal times when there isn't the populism, you know, everywhere on the globe threatening us, I would be writing penis jokes about or jokes about my family. Like I, I'm a, you know, I spent a lot of time as a humor columnist for Time Magazine. I was there for about 20 years, and uh, my previous book was about uh, finding out that we were having a boy, my wife and I, and panicking that I'm incapable of raising a boy. And I went out and did a bunch of manly stuff to learn how to be a man. So I like um, was became a Boy Scout, you know, in my, I guess in my late 30s, and then I, uh, I wound up fighting Randy Couture and doing three, three days of. Uh, boot camp in the army. So that's the kind of stuff I'm supposed to be doing. But, you know, when politics have gotten to the point where humor columnists are writing about it, I think it's a bad, bad sign. So I, so I do not have any, I'm not a political scientist, not a philosopher. I'm just a journalist who went out and got kind of panicked when Trump won. I was going to this party down the block, this liberal, I live in Los Angeles in like the bluest of the blue kind of areas, even in Los Angeles. And going to a party for the election. Brentwood? Uh, say again? Uh, Brentwood? Uh, no, no, actually, it's true. <laughs> There's always a bluer spot in L.A. No, I'm in like the Hollywood Hills, which is pretty okay. blue. It's pretty blue. Yeah, but we can be beaten by, by Brentwood for the Pacific Palisades or even uh -huh. Santa Monica, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> So I was going to this party for houses up on my block. This liberal radio host, Stephanie Miller, was throwing for the election. And they were all like, you know, getting drunk and having a good time. And I had brought a bottle of Trump Blanc de Blanc uh, Virginia sparkling wine, thinking we would like open it and, and toast uh, Hillary Clinton's victory and mock him for the fact that he had tried to be, you know, become an elite by making this Virginia sparkling wine. Uh, that he loved so much. And of course, it started to go the other way, and I started to panic. Not because the Republican had won. Like, I have, you know, I have friends who make great wine who are Republicans. And, you know, plenty of Republicans have won before. And I lived happily through that, sometimes better, sometimes worse. I was panicked because it's the first time the elite had lost since probably Andrew Jackson. And I was, I was really, really worried about what was going to happen to our country. Uh, mm like truly just scared. And so um, what I tend to do when I'm scared, because I have no actual skills as we've established, is to go and try and find out more information. Because usually when I, when I do some reporting and look into things, they're not quite as scary as my anxious, my anxiety kind of spirals out into. So I, the first thing I did was I kind of I looked up what the county was with the highest percentage of Trump voters. And I saw if they'd let me kind of come down there and, and live there for a week. So I went down to um, this town 
in Texas called Miami, Texas, which had that 90. 90- How do you spell that? What you that spell word? it like Miami, which is very confusing because I kept calling this, the mayor in the town and uh, his receptionist would pick up and say, Miami, Texas, except not in that accent. It was just Miami, Te- Miami Texas. Uh-huh. And I was like, why is she saying Miami? And then it turns out everyone said Miami, but they didn't have like thick accents. So I started to think maybe the original founders of this town had thick accents. But, it, but uh, I quickly learned that was the name of the tribe. Um, in that area. Uh, it was ah, a huge, it's called the, a Miami, area. the Miami tribe. Yeah, I think, is the college pronounced Miami or Miami? You know, the, in Miami University? In, in no, 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 not Florida? in Florida. That's a different, that's named after a lake there. But the um, right. University of Miami, Miami? I don't know which one it is. It's in like... Uh, Got it. It's in this town. No, no, it's a big college in like, I want to say Missouri. Ohio? You Ohio. Mean, you mean Miami University? They, they say yeah. Miami. They say Miami. They say Miami University. Yeah, they say Miami University. Um, I think it's for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So anyway, there's this town. They have like 96.4% of people there voted for Trump. And so I, I went there and hung out with them for a week to find out kind of why they hate me. And it was, uh, it was really interesting. What did you find out? Well, I, I got really scared before I went down. Like everyone I knew... In uh, my family, even my friends were like, "You gotta be careful down there." Like they're not, you know, they were really scared for my safety. They were like, "Don't tell them you're a Jew, whatever you do." And, <laughs> and so I was picturing. But, had, yeah. had you never had you never lived around like really blue collar, kind of redneck working class folks that were conservative? No, I grew up in New Jersey, and then I. Okay. Uh, I went to college in the Bay Area, then I moved to Manhattan, and then I moved to Los Angeles. So, no. Ah. I had a summer job for one summer in, like, Paradise, California, which has since burned down in a fire. But even that place was more like a retirement community. And they were conservative, but not not in this way. Not in a non-elite, super locally informed kind of way. Yeah, because Paradise, California is right next to Chico. Uh, California, which is a college town, mm-hmm. and it's mostly a retirement community. So no, I'd say I never. Re- I know I have not lived in a blue collar uh, area my whole life, right? And particularly not a blue collar area that was also conservative. And Wait, did you did you grow up big, in a blue collar area? You know, I went to I went to three different high schools, and I grew up in. What Scottsdale, did, you, did you get thrown out, or your parents moved? Yeah, <laughs> a little of both. A little of both. No, but really, it was my parents moving. But I'd grown up in Scottsdale, Arizona, but I grew up really kind of on the border of Scottsdale and Phoenix, where I went to schools that were half elite, half Hmm. economically elite, and half economically challenged. It was a really interesting mix because it was like the rich and the poor. It was not super middle class, all right? It was like the rich and the poor. And then I went to high school in California in a small town south of Stockton. Little what town's town that? called Manteca, California. Yeah, you made that up. I, I know, right? You know, you know what Manteca means in Spanish? It means lard. No. That's the name of that town. Oh, yeah, straight up, Manteca. Why would they name a town Manteca? I have no idea. It doesn't make any sense. I just sense. gave you this like, amazing story about how they named a town I was in for one week, and you I, lived in this place, and you don't know. I know, I know. I know, but I wasn't as intellectually curious when I was in high school. 
Uh, At least not okay. about, you know, but, I'm gonna, but after this call, I'm going to go try to figure that out. Weird. But when I moved to this town, it was interesting for me because I didn't realize that I'd never truly lived amongst the poor, white, conservative mm-hmm. world. And rural, I moved to this rural, town. Right? It was rural. Yeah. It was. But, but it was also small town uh, California, northern California which, you know, is based on agriculture, but it was still a town, right? So there's a lot of working class people. There were warehouses, all kinds of stuff. But what was uh, fascinating to me is I had moved from an area where we were solidly middle class, and I knew lots of people who had lots more money, and I knew lots of people who had a lot less money. But I moved to this town where suddenly everybody thought we were rich, mm. right? How that And I would feel? tell them, I'd say, well, it felt bizarre because I knew that wasn't true, Right. And I used to tell them, I'd say, listen, I'm not rich. You're just poor. There's a huge difference, right? So my family's not poor, but you guys are broke. Right. So you think because my dad has a job and my parents are married that we're rich. And that's just not true. And then we would have these, you know, they would be not be long arguments because it, they're not um, from the intellectual elite by any stretch. And but yet it was an amazing experience for me because it grew my breadth of understanding about the fabric of our culture in a way that I could have never learned if I'd only stayed among the conservative economic elite and or the liberal um, economic elite and or the liberal uh, intellectual, which I've lived amongst as well. So what it, what it did for me was it gave me a comfort with the layers of society that I'd never had previously. And so and that's, it's interesting. feel that comfort? Um, well, I feel comfortable in, because I've, I've lived amongst uh, people of every economic level and every race and every creed. I mean, truly, like, I feel comfortable everywhere at this point. But I've lived deeply enough in those circles of people to know what makes them tick and what they're, kind of like when you talk about your anxieties and fears, and I get their anxieties. I don't necessarily agree with their anxieties and fears, but I can empathize with them and be compassionate toward them. And I don't feel non-safe because I'm a six foot three, 220 pound white male walking around as like privileged as can be. Right. But, you know, I got an amazing education. I had access to anything that I dreamed of. I mean, when I look at like what my life story is, it's not hardship. Right. Right. It, it was curiosity that could be then fueled, which is what I hear in you. Like I hear tons of curiosity, but I hear curiosity that has been able to be fueled, which yeah, is awesome. Yeah. So, that, that's a great part of being a journalist. I mean, that's, that's the part, right? Every, everything else is uh, very secondary. I mean, I went into it to become a writer. I didn't care about the reporting. But what I eventually learned when I was sitting in a, a sitcom writer's room, you know, for months at a time, in a, basically in a meeting all day long, which is what a sitcom writer's room is, I realized that all the great things, you know, besides my family uh, in my life were due to reporting, like all the cool experiences I had. And that was worth so much more than a job that maybe paid more or, or had more, uh, you know, prestige in some way. I was, like, I was just being able to be interested in something and then meet the people that, that do those things is kind of amazing. So your curiosity leads you to Miami, Texas, and what happened? Where, where um, I had read, did you read Hillbilly Elegy? 
Um, no, but it sounds like cool, a great name. Cool book. Um, and I expected kind of the rural West Virginia life he describes growing up in. You know, like, and, and you were talking about in your lard town, which is, you know, mm-hmm. very, very poor um, people who aren't very educated uh, and probably were extremely racist and, uh, and a little scary. So I was, I was panicked when I got to uh, the bed and breakfast that I was staying at. Which is which the mayor didn't even know about. There's there's 500 people in this town, and I asked the mayor where to stay, and he told me to stay like an hour and a half away at a Holiday Inn. But uh, somehow someone had listed a, their house on Airbnb and created that bed and breakfast. So I stayed there, and I was really panicked, uh, as panicked as anyone's ever been to stay at a bed and breakfast. And I, the woman who was running this place, was just so lovely and cool. And I quickly learned that this town is not at all poor. In fact the average income there was significantly higher than in Los Angeles. Uh, they mostly worked in the oil and gas industry, uh, which, you know, was, is not doing well, was not doing well. But they were, they were pretty well paid. Uh, and there was also some old money ranchers in town, these families who had kind of run the town forever. And Always. Owned these, owned these huge ranches. In fact, in fact <laughs> T. Boone Pig, yeah, I know, there's an elite everywhere. Uh, in in every variety, the the both the intellectual elite and the boat elite, even in a town of 500 people, everything is high school. So, <laughs> you know, there's one cafe that's open sometimes. There's there was one store which was only open Saturdays for a few hours, and was actually just this guy selling his hoarder father's old stuff. Now that his dad had died, like that was the only store in town, and um. And they were also pretty well educated. Like the percentage of people who went to college was higher than uh, in Los Angeles. And so they were not at all what I expected. And they were so nice. Like I didn't pay for a meal the entire week I was there. Like they either had me in their house or they brought me to this cafe. And, um, and they really welcomed me into their lives. And I got to see kind of how they viewed the world. And I think the citification and globalization of the world was something they found really threatening. Now, pe- politically, people, political scientists will tell you that people do not vote selfishly. They, they vote almost completely altruistically. So when my liberal friends yell about how stupid Trump voters are because they're voting against their own interests, because they have less money, or they're soybean farmers who are voting for Trump even though you know, their tariffs are going to hurt them. What they don't realize is people are voting for what they hope is a better country, just like rich liberals will vote for higher taxes, even though it hurts their bottom line. So these, these people really worry about globalization and citification and the change in America. So they're, when they talk about Los Angeles to me, they picture homeless people, they picture people not knowing their neighbors, they picture people on their cell phones all day instead of on each other's porches not going to church, not seeing each other every week at church and having a meal together. And they're not wrong. Like that, that's I, I was going to say, that, that actually sounds like L.A. It does. It sounds like yeah. everywhere I've ever lived, and they can't understand why anyone – it's dystopic. They cannot understand why anyone would want to live in Atlanta or New York or, or any of these cities, and they fear that their way of life, which they, they find superior and in many ways is superior – is disappearing, and it is disappearing. This town has been shrinking for decades and is continuing to shrink. So, 
So that's Wait, what they're so worried about. Do you think they, inter- they introduced the coronavirus to force us all to go back home and make friends with our neighbors? No, it's interesting. Yeah, I've been talking distance. to the people in Miami, and they aren't uh, – and they're social distancing. Like, I, that's the other thing that drives me crazy about the liberal bubble I live in. Like, it, it gets real black and white real fast. And, like, those people don't believe in science, and they don't believe in the coronavirus. I'm like, no, everyone in Miami is social distancing. They're having church in a parking lot, um, like a drive-in church where they're – even though it's a tiny church, the minister is standing in the parking lot, and they tune into a radio station. Like, they believe in the coronavirus. They, and, and they believe in ideas that allow them to vote for a human being, whatever you think about our president. I think they're pretty eyes wide open about what yeah. kind of a person he might or might not be. Oh, yeah. Um, These people in Miami would not want to have him over their house for dinner. Like the way they would describe <laughs> him to me is they see this existential threat to the to our way of life. And they would say, look, if you have... Uh, an infestation of of cockroaches, uh, which is an unfortunate analogy for many reasons. But they would say, and you hired an exterminator, and that exterminator's butt crack was showing, and he was cursing, uh, but he got the job done. You would you would hire him again. So I think you'd even that, recommend him to your friends. You might even uh, go to a rally that he had, uh, maybe. <laughs> But yeah, right. I don't think, I don't well, think as long as as long person. as the only rallying cry was this guy will get rid of the cockroach. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now that's my experience too with like people that I know that are more extreme right and Trump supporters. They don't condone the man's humanity or inhumanity, however you know you interpret it, but they are just more fearful of what the alternative might be. And so it's exactly what you're talking about. It's hiring an exterminator. I mean, the analogy is kind of scary, but it's, you know, it's hiring somebody to, to deal with a bad problem. Yeah. And, and I think um, I horribly disagree with them on, on the badness of this problem. Uh, I definitely think I learned a lot from them and their way of life. Uh, and I got reassured that they weren't horrible racist people, but I think that their plan for a society of 300 million people or for a globe, because this kind of populism is going on everywhere, is is truly dangerous and can send us back to the dark ages. So even though I think their hearts might be in the right place, I think your heart can be in a good place and you can be advocating for an overall policy that can be very, very dangerous. Well, that's fear-based, right? I mean, it's all what we, it's each of us have our own anxieties. And when anxieties that are maybe misguided gather in a group and that group gets power, then you get really frightening things in every microcosm of, of humanity, whether yeah. it's, you know, in Miami, Texas, or in the United States of America, which is a tiny little dot in the populace of the world. You know, I mean, all kinds of crazy can happen when people get afraid. Yeah, yeah. We're, and we're not, that's the other thing that drives me crazy about, uh, this has nothing to do with the, what we're talking about, but I do wish Americans would take foreign policy more seriously. Like, if you're going to have this giant army and nuclear missiles, you need to pay more attention to the rest of the world um, because they're they're really interested in us. So, yeah, that 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 drives me crazy, too. Well, but do you think is that would you advocate for America taking some more imperialistic kind of position 
because a lot of what you described, I think of as America's natural isolationism. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That, that that they that most Americans think we have nuclear weapons to make sure that nobody fucks excuse me <laughs> screws up our yeah. lives you know. Uh, <laughs> well, I just watched war games with my ten year old son so uh, yes that is the mutually assured destruction theory uh, is explained very well by Matthew Broderick. It, it makes me think of a, a an interesting vignette when I, I spent a summer in Russia when I was young. Was that with the church? And we were on a bus one time, and we were sitting there uh, speaking in English, and this woman, this Russian woman, turns to him and says, what language are you guys speaking? And he says to her, we're speaking English. And she says, are you students of the university? He says, well, I'm a student at the university, but this guy here is an American. She said, he's not an American. Americans don't come to Russia. And she says, no, no, he really is an American. He says, wouldn't you like to learn English? He says to this woman. She says, why would I want to learn English? Everyone speaks Russian. And I thought to myself, wow, Americans and Russians aren't that far apart, right? Is that the, 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 the centrist, the, 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 the egocentrism that goes along with being a huge country and then living in the center of that country where you're farthest away from your neighbors and your enemies, et cetera, can create a lot of delusions about your place and about what other people um, think when they interact with you. Yeah, but what year was that? That was 1995, so it was four yeah. years after Glasnost. The amount of people now who speak English, partly due to the Internet, uh, is crazy. And, Staggering. Uh, and, I mean, you go to Paris, and there is Paris of all places, and the subways, the metro is full of ads, you know, Wall Street English, you know, uh, English is freedom, and, that, and I think that's, mm-hmm. that's very true right now. The the power of America, and so yeah, I mean, I I, I I I'm more dove than hawk, but I do think that if America doesn't fill a power vacuum, other countries will probably China, and that that their their kind of ideology then becomes dominant. So you have, and then you have to deal with that reverberation in your own country. So, you know, the idea of privacy would probably disappear. The idea of um, democracy could could be weakened. So, yeah, I actually do think it's important to for America to have a leadership role. That sounds like the kind of ideas that would come out of a conservative think tank. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it's a very centrist idea. I think I think Madeleine Albright or Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton would would all argue that same thing. I agree. It, with it's that, not man. something that Bernie Sanders would probably say. No, but Bernie Sanders I mean, scares me too. Like I get into Bernie Sanders a little bit in the book. Again, I try not to make it all about politics, although it's hard not to. Uh, but I talk about like he wanted to put a farmer on the board of governors. Like you put a farmer on the board of governors, and then there's two reasons we no longer eat. Like the, his his ideas are very at some points very anti-intellectual and, and, and very anti-expert and very, you know, right. And I'm worried about the, the far right populism, but there's, you know, far left populism in Venezuela can be far, far worse. So I'm worried about populism far, and nationalism in general. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you, but it sounds like what you're advocating for is maybe more of an intellectual imperialism. Is that, 
I mean, it's going to require the, the wielding of power to maintain, but really it's about maintaining power in order to have influence in the world of ideas that ultimately shape all societies. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I think that the democracy is in trouble right now. And I don't know if this pandemic is going to make it worse and authoritarians are going to take more power like they are in, in Hungary and Poland during this, or if people are going to flip the switch and think, oh my God, I don't want a person in charge who thinks he can solve a pandemic through his gut and, and you know, and through isolationism. It, so, it, you know, that's what happened during the depression. People kind of started to really hire intellectuals in their, you know, in the FDR cabinet. Suddenly there was a lot of economists. So I don't, and professors. And so I could go either way. I'm just, it's weird to live through history, right? Like, Everything in the last, you know, four years has been shocking. It's not something I had any predictive model for, I mean, even though I probably should have. This stuff has happened before. Just like if you told me a few months ago we'd be all sitting in our houses for months on end, uh, I, I wouldn't believe that could happen right now. So, so I don't know what's going to happen. And I, and, I'm, and I think in the intellectual elite makes a lot of mistakes when they go outside of their area of expertise, which is what happens when you go on any news show, right? Like you sign up to be a talking head for a subject on CNN and you get to that green room and they're like, actually, the news has changed. We're talking about this now. And they send you on. I remember being in the Bill Maher green room and being given a packet of information that we were going to talk about in a few hours because the news had changed. And I was going to talk about the telecommunications bill. (laughs) And you're like... Oh my God! I'm a humor columnist. Like, I I should not. T- so I'm like, let me come up with a couple of jokes because I'm not gonna advocate for you know. And there was like a Democrat, like a Paul Begala, I think, and that some Republican, and they had their talking points, right? Because the party has their opinion on this stuff. But mm-hmm. I don't really belong to a party like that. Like, I don't know anything. I'm not gonna. So it, but you do. You get sucked into those situations. So I try and avoid that, and I try and avoid predicting because I just have no idea what's going to happen. I barely know what happened. Like my whole, the book isn't to tell people how to fix this. My book was just trying to figure out what happened. So, and people really jump to how do we solve this before they even get to the what happened. And I think that's not so smart. Well, so what, what do you think is happening right now? Not in a predictive sense, but what are you sense? You're a very intuitive person. Like I can tell no. you can take, no, you're not? No, that's my whole book is against intuition, for, for sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, tell me about that. Why is it I've against intuition? I've done a poor intuition? job communicating what my book because, is about. Because you seem like an incredibly intuitive person. So tell me why your intuition has led you to be against intuition. Okay, so the one thing is David Foster Wallace said that my intuition definitely tells me, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that I am the exact perfect center of the universe and the most important person in it. That's the <laughs> basic information given to me every second. Uh, and I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that intuition is wrong. And probably everything after that, including I do more work around the house than my wife is wrong too. So, um, because I'm only seeing my perspective. So I think intuition sucks. Uh, I know intuition sucks. And um, look, everyone's intuition is that they can go outside and hang out with people, right? Like, but, but that turns out not to be true right now. Like, there's a virus that we can't see 
that is doing things we can't understand except by studying it. So, no, I think uh, intuition definitely sucks. All right, so then what's going on right now? The argument of the populist is all the elites who claim to have expertise are corrupt, and they are, they're bending the rules to help themselves once they get control of them. And what we need are people who don't have any expertise and just have a good heart and can make decisions from their gut that aren't corrupted by um, their ability to, to bend the rules in their favor. So that's the populist argument. And, I, I, and, and I've spent enough time, I think, with people who run things to know that they aren't horribly corrupt and that they aren't doing things just for themselves and they really do care. I mean, I, I've rarely met a politician from the left or right who didn't, you know, whether I agree with them or not, they weren't in this to help people. I, I just haven't. So you think that there's more altruism than egoism driving politicians? Egoism is tough. Like, I, I, let's, let's talk. Egoism really drives so many things uh, in our lives that I don't, I don't know how to put that aside. But um, I think they're more interested in helping other people than in gaining money uh, or, benef- or, or tangible benefits for themselves. Is that a, a that's, what about reputational benefit? I mean, I I just you know huh. I experience oftentimes altruism is a cloak for yeah egoism in the sense that they might not want to be the richest. Or they might not want to be the most powerful, but they want to be the best thought of. They want to be the one with the reputation. Lincoln Lincoln talked about that, right? Lincoln said Mm -hmm. there is no altruism because it's always Mm -hmm. about um, uh, exactly what you said. So it's hard to parse out in any situation what you're doing for ego, what you're doing for reputation. Even, Even like, you know, going to Russia to help orphans. Like it's really hard, I think, to parse out how much of that you would do if it didn't increase your own thought about yourself or your ability to get to the afterlife or there's so many different motivations that's really I don't even know if it's worth parsing those things like those things might be fine motivators like maybe I don't care if that's what motivates you if it's your ego or people telling you you're awesome or you know uh, but but I think there's a difference between that and what the populace think which is that they are literally giving themselves material benefits and screwing over other people on purpose. There's no doubt some of that's happening in our society, right? I mean, all you have to do is look at the latest bailout and follow the train of those dollars. And you'll find that shockingly people abuse power, which is of course not that shocking. So. No, that's for sure. And that happens on every level, right? There's just every level. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there is no government, right or left, that doesn't have cronyism. No, but our country is really – I mean, people think we're so corrupt. And if you look at any kind of global ranking of corruption, we are really far down the list. And all you have to do is, like, go to Russia or go to India or Agreed. You know, some worse country where, you know – you'll just get pulled over and you just have to pay off the cops who then pay off someone else. I mean, you want to see corruption, like leave America and find out like how you open a restaurant. You know, you might, you might think there's, there's an imperfect system here, but 
it's pretty good compared to the rest of the world. I tell my friends who make any complaints about this, I say, you know what, you're right. America is the worst country on the planet, except for everybody else. Except Canada. Right? right. Yeah. So, so we'll start with America. We'll say America is the worst, and then we'll go analyze. We'll find out everybody is worse than worse. It is a yeah. terrible survival of the fittest without rule of law outside of this country. And, the, and I would say in general kind of the English Commonwealth does a pretty good job of protecting human rights, but in most of probably Western Europe. But in general, America is about as good as it gets from a corruption standpoint. I agree with you. I yeah, think it's just people I mean, don't have context for what real corruption looks like. You don't even have to have context. Just look at where um, a lot of people are trying to get into America. Not that many people are trying to get out. Um, True. And, you, I, and that's why I heard James – I was at the Politicon event, and James Carville was on stage with Sean Hannity debating. And Carville was just getting creamed because Sean Hannity's a way better debater. I mean, that's what he does for a living. And um, at some point, he was describing the kind of dystopic world of the cities and how awful San Francisco is with its homelessness and crime. And, and Carville just looked at me and said, you know, you're right. That's why you can get like a two-bedroom apartment in San Francisco for $200 a month right now. And I was like, well, there's your argument. Like you can argue that cities are horrible, but, but you know, that the cost of living them keeps going up because people want to live there. Let's imagine a world where I make you, I mean, I don't know, the czar of California, right? You're above the governor. Which is kind of what, what we have right now during the coronavirus. <laughs> it's true. There is a little bit of yeah. a, a czarship. Um, imagine you're the intellectual czar of California. What are four things that you say this state needs to change? Well, I mean, honestly, that is the same thing as the telecommunications bill. Like, I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not a politician. I'm not a problem solver. And like, everyone wants to put you in those roles because you even I have a tiny little platform, and so people want mm -hmm. to assume that like, what would I do to stop the coronavirus? Like. I have no idea. I can maybe go out and find out if I do a really good job what the problems are in California. But that's as far as, as my expertise can take us. Like, I don't know. God, I, I mean, I, what I wouldn't do for more leaders like that, I mean, just the intellectual humility to start with, I don't know. What an incredible starting point that is very rare to find. Well, that's why I should be the czar of California. That's what I was just thinking. No, 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 right? wait, that's the opposite. It's the Socrates, it's the Socrates argument. Yeah. You know, the, 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 I, I went to the world. I looked for the wisest man. I found many men who found, thought they were very wise. And uh, I, of course, know that I'm not. And unfortunately, knowing that I'm not the wisest man makes me the wisest man on earth. Oh, I, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm hearing from you. I'm listening. I'm going, I'm going to listen to Socrates, right? At least he knows. Like, he doesn't know anything, which is an yeah. amazing starting point for leadership. What, what, so, what, what I wouldn't so do for a, a president who just showed up and said, you know what? I, there's a lot of stuff I just don't know. So let me yeah, surround yeah. myself with people that know, and we'll like we'll build a society based on what we know and being honest about what we don't know. I'm not saying he was picked the best people. I'm not a fan of the laugher curve. But that was a little bit of Reagan's attitude, right? Like he didn't – he claimed to be a great leader. He didn't claim to, to, to have to know, you know, solutions to how to get rid of a virus. Yeah. Philosophically, he was on the right page. 
but he wanted to surround Art himself have... with smart people and let them make decisions. Right. Yeah, right. And so now if you choose the wrong guys, then they're going to come with the wrong ideas, and that's, you know, and so then that's going to be the consequence. And so it's, right. it's not that you always get it right. Or if you choose all guys. with the premise. Yeah. Right, if you choose, yeah, fair enough, right? Because the difficulty is if you don't know, who are you to choose? So then who even chooses who's going to be the expert that makes XYZ decision? None, none of this stuff is easy. None of this stuff is no. clean. None of this stuff is perfect. And that's, that's the populist argument, which is, oh, my God, the experts have screwed up. This is so they, – why would they do such dumb things? They're dumber than the average person. This isn't that hard. These, I mean, the whole argument is always – they call a strong man like Trump the great simplifier, Right. Because his argument is, gosh, this isn't so hard. You people are just all corrupt. Just let a normal person in here. And he, and it's always a he, can just you know, make common sense decisions because these problems are very simple. And he offers very simple solutions, whether it's the Middle East or, um, or economics. You know, we just have to hire higher tariffs and stop trading. Like Whatever his solutions are, they're so, super simple. And they're, and they're wrong because everyone knows from their own industry – or their own lives, that, that things are complicated. Um, and it just drives me crazy when people offer really simple solutions to things. So you obviously have a lot of curiosity about all sorts of things. If I'm a, I'm a, I imagine I'm a 17-year-old kid. I'm trying to finish up high school, and I come to you, and I say, Mr. Stein, tell me five First of all, principles I don't believe you're 17 once you call me Mr. Stein. <laughs> There's zero. So we we have a time machine, and we went to 1954, and there's a 17 year old who calls me Mr. Stein. Okay, continue. Yo, homie. Yeah. Tell me five things, right? So we've, we've gotten to 1984 things. now. This is great. Okay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, that's as far as I can go. Uh, but what, what, tell me five things I should know about life. Have you asked this question of other people? No, I just I'm making this stuff up as we go along. You just All right, you, five you seem things. like the kind of I person like who actually would have a like philosophical ideas that would be All right. Uh, These are this isn't philosophy, but what for five things you should know about life? Yeah, five um, things I should know about life. You should know that you should figure out the other person's perspective in every situation. Love like, that. don't think about your perspective and how to convince them that you're right. Just try and figure out what their perspective is. Like, that's, that's the key to empathy. That's the key to negotiation. Um, that's the key to unlocking curiosity. Just figure out what their perspective is and what they're thinking and what they want. I'd say, I'd say that would be number one. Love that. Um, I'm writing this stuff down in my 17-year-old notebook. <laughs> is it a you trapper might say, keeper? He, he, yeah, <laughs> three ring binder. Yeah, this, yeah. This kid, you, you might say to this kid, "Listen, kid, you don't need five things. You only need to know three things." Oh, good. But that's five, five. So, whatever you can come up with. I love um, the first one. It's a great. It's a great premise, which is, you know, spend the time trying to understand your opponents and/or yeah. your, you know, the alternative view based on what this person's experience is. Um, I would say enter every conversation eager, not just willing, but like eager to have your mind changed. Like even if it's a negotiation, I would say you can't win a negotiation unless you walk in willing to 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 lose your initial desire. 
Right. John Maynard Keynes, right? When the when the fact I don't know about you, sir, but when the facts change, I change my mind. Yeah, definitely that. But yeah, so you have to walk exactly. So you walk into every situation. I mean, the fun of life is learning is having your mind blown, right? Like the fun of life is walking into a situation sure of one thing and leaving knowing this other thing. So if that's if that's your attitude walking in, you're you're more likely to um I just heard some negotiator talk about the fact that compromise he's anti compromise because compromise is just giving up. Compromise is just like uh they couldn't convince me, I couldn't convince them. So this mm-hmm. isn't worth spending mm-hmm. more time on, so let's just split the difference. But, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not the right isn't solution. He, isn't that guy? Isn't that isn't that the guy doing the master class? You know, those yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I thought that was super smart. Uh-huh. He he had been like a, a kidnap negotiator, a hostage negotiator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, don't split the difference. Yeah, that's something I'd mm-hmm. never thought about. Like the compromise is failure, but it but mm-hmm. it rings so true, right? Mm-hmm. Like no, like yeah. somebody probably was right and somebody probably was wrong, and you just couldn't figure it out, so you like decided to stop arguing. <laughs> it's not worth it to argue anymore. What's yeah. the number? Mm-hmm. What, I, I have a uh, married couple friend, and they have a song called Compromise, Compromise. No one gets what they want. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that is it. <laughs> Nobody walks away from a compromise site. <laughs> okay, so the second one for my 17-year-old notebook is uh, be, be, be ready to have your mind changed. Be open yeah. and eager to finding out new things that will change oh, your life. Oh, and if your 17-year-old lives in America, I would say, like, build a global and historical perspective. Like, I just cannot stand when the president is like, nothing like this has ever happened before. Like, no one could have prepared. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> this is the greatest solution we've ever had. This is the first virus? <laughs> I remember SARS. I remember, like, this... Um, even I remember hey, some. Um, it's not the so bubonic yeah. plague, thank God. Yeah. Um, that that stuck around for a long time, by the way. Like, we shouldn't talk about that because it's very upsetting. And this is not it's a bad. the virus. But, no, um, this, yeah. And we have antibiotics. But this that, that um, in certain places, like 100 years of bubonic plague. Uh, so, yes, I'd say, like, people I, – I get very frustrated when people – make arguments that just dissolve if you've ever read about any other country. So like when, when the election happened and so many people I knew were saying, well, it's because we had a black president, you know, and therefore, you know, people wanted this guy, this racist guy. And I was like, well, we've got a Trump in many countries right now, whether it's India or Brazil or England or Hungary or Poland or Russia, like, they didn't have black presidents, so that can't be the main driver of this. Like, and then I would talk to people about Viktor Orban or, or any of these leaders, and they would just, and these are people who know way more than me about what's going on with American politics, because they're probably watching CNN all day long or Fox News all day long. But they, um, they didn't know anything about other countries. And I was like, what, what is going on? I, I cut my cable like six years ago. So I don't get to see much of those shows, but what are they covering on these channels that these people know the minute details of like Amy Klobuchar's plans, but they don't know anything about Europe. It's just weird to me. Yeah. I don't understand that either, but I guess if you're, 
not intellectually curious. But they are, right? They're willing to, like, read Elizabeth Warren's plans. I tried that. I didn't get that far. No, right. Well, then maybe that's a different driver. Yeah. Right. Then, but, then, then gaining a global and uh, and historical perspective. Right. That's a maybe it's a different kind of curiosity. Yeah. Um, so how do you so how do you how do you instill how do you instill curiosity? I mean, it's such no, an important intellectual trait. But I, how do you instill it? It's cultural. It's educational. It's cultural. We just don't, you know, because I guess because we're such a huge, powerful country that's far away from other countries, um, we just aren't fed that information very much. And if you're not fed that information, like I did, um, we've barely touched on my nerdiness, but I did model United Nations in high school. And that kind of forced you to, like, learn, you know, whatever country you're representing. So, you know, if I was representing Angola, like, I would learn something about, Jonas Sanimbi, whose name I can't pronounce anymore, but I, but mm-hmm. you would learn these, and, and you really, if you learn a couple facts about like Mozambique or, or Angola, those the history reverberates, right? Like you don't, you don't need like the, we're, people are fighting the same problem in the Middle East. Like if you don't know the difference between Sunnis and Shiites, if you don't know the the tension between Iran and Saudi Arabia, you really only have to learn that once, and you can really know a lot more about the region. So. So I, I don't know. We're just not given that information. Uh, and I think history, I had an amazing American history teacher for two years in high school. So, like, I was, I just read that three-part biography on Theodore Roosevelt, and I'm, I'm my son's American history and Spanish teacher right now. Right now? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty amazing, first let me say, uh, which is really impressive because I don't know how to speak Spanish. I was just going to uh, say, and we'd be in. I got me again. We're doing Duolingo, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, uh, Duolingo. It's actually a good app. Well, it, it was the, I, I have no comparison, but it's working. I think like we just do like ten minutes a day, and we're we're like forty days in, and we can say one or two sentences. Uh, got it. So you guys are learning Spanish together. You're a Spanish uh, guide. I call myself the Spanish teacher. I call myself uh, Senor Stein, but in reality, <laughs> uh, in reality, we're both students at uh, Senior Duolingo. So are you, are, how do you like being a, a teacher? Well, I've, I've always had the secret desire, maybe because of my high school American history teacher, to be an American history teacher, because I feel like it's taught in a really boring way. Like, it's really hard when you're 17 to have any perspective on the past, just because you haven't been aware for more than, like, I don't know, seven, eight years of time passing, right? So, mm-hmm. like... If I tell you about something that happened in 1900, like you don't, you can't even picture what that means. That's just that's the same as 1400 or 1950. A, there's no, we're given no perspective of what that looks like unless we literally watch a movie or something. We're like, oh, horses. So I think, I think giving people some perspective on history and telling them this is when your great grandparents lived. This is what life was like in those days. Like this is what a, t- a typical person went through. Is which is what um, Robert Caro does for like hundreds of pages for no reason in the LBJ books. Like he just will tell you like, this is what it was like to make dinner. Like it was like, what, why are we talking about this? I was just saying, I've always thought somebody should write a book and maybe it's you that, uh, that, that chronicles uh, famous people of, of whatever age. So that when I'm 16 years old, I can go back and read about 
all the things 16-year-olds did throughout all of recorded human history. Oh. And then same thing, 17, 18, 19, ah. right to where then, you know, you have a book that when you're, when you turn 50, you can get this book that it's like, all right, so these are all the things these other 50-year-olds were doing over the last 10,000 years or 3,500 years or whatever it is. That's a great idea because especially like teenagers, right? Agreed. Because yeah. The whole notion of teenagers doesn't exist before like 1950 something. And the whole idea of childhood doesn't really exist if you go much further back. So, you know, you don't have to go much further back to see, like, or you don't have to go to a different culture. There's still cultures like this where if you're 15, you're getting married and having, you know, about to have kids. That's right. If, I mean, I'm watching that show Unorthodox right now, and that's kind of how it is in the Hasidic communities, right? Like, you True. get sent off, someone teaches you how to have sex, and you have babies. So, yeah, I think that would be super interesting to know what it's like to be 15 in different places and times, which is basically it sucks. <laughs> I mean, it depends. There's, you know, there's cultures like you're saying, and there's times in history when being 15 meant you might be on uh, going to war with the yep. tribe. You might be going hunting every day. You might have to take up a leadership role because your father died who was 30. There's still places right? where being 15 means you're going to war. For I mean, Absolutely. tons of places. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? So being 15 might just be being a man. But how cool would it be if you were studying history as a child or as a 15-year-old? And history was – what you were studying was um, all of what it's been like to be – a 15-year-old man, a 15-year-old woman, a 15-year-old uh, African-American man, a 15-year-old uh, Asian woman. What does this mean throughout all of history? And what does it mean for you today? I mean, that's really kind of what you're studying history for in the first place is to try to figure out what does it mean for you today? What's going on? Yeah, then you could, like, profile some famous, like, like 12-year-old, like Joan of Arc or something. Uh, incredible, I like, right? I mean, yeah. who, who thinks of Joan of Arc as being as young as she was? <laughs> You know, she was, it's like she, she was probably uh, Greta, right? She was the Greta of her day. She just showed up and started sailing around Wait, the world. Wait, who's Greta? Like, what to do? Greta, yeah, you know, Greta from uh, Sweden. Oh, Gre oh, oh sorry, the, the Swedish, uh, yes. She's yeah. Swedish, right? I think so. Yes, the, uh, the climate activist, yes. Right, she's an activist, but, I mean, she can't. She's like Joan of Arc. She just has a, feels like a, a, a calling from the universe. That's true. Malala was, uh, was a teenager. Yeah, we could, uh, we'd have a great series. See, there are these books that might that are in a lot of uh, elementary schools now, which are a little bit similar. They're called like Who Was, and they'll pick some famous person like JFK or something, and they'll do a biography of that person. But they'll really kind of spend a good half of it on their childhood, which I think really sucks the kids in. Yeah, well, you know, relatable stories about like, you know, JFK and his brothers, uh, and and then they get to like the PT thinking. All right, Joel, we're out of time. This has been fantastic. I could I'm talk sorry to you I didn't give more to your 17-year-old friend. And I'm sorry hey, I didn't listen. at all communicate that my book is funny. Um, but it is. I mean, I'm, dead, I'm, I'm totally serious about the problems I'm worried about. But hopefully the book is also really funny because that's what I do for a living. If somebody wants to buy this book, is it Amazon? Is that the best place to get it? They should go to the crowdedest bookstore near them. Um, <laughs> no. What do you, there's only one way to buy things anymore. No. You can, I guess local bookstores also are, are delivering. Um, uh -huh. I think people know how to buy it. If people are listening to this podcast and got this far in and they don't know how to buy a book, they should listen to a different podcast. <laughs> Something much, much okay. simpler. 
All right. So uh, tell them the name of the book, and if they want to follow you on social media or any of that kind of stuff, how would the people how would people oh, follow God. you? Or- just don't do that. Just read the book. It's called uh, right. In Defense of Elitism: Why I'm Better Than You and You Are Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. <laughs> so <And it's>, good. Uh, <sighs> All right. Well, Joel, thank you for being on the podcast with us. I'd love it if you do it again. I mean, we could we could talk about a hundred different topics. Believe it or not, I've got a lot of time right now. I I believe it. All right. Yep. Well, thanks again for being on the program, and and we'll talk again soon. It was nice meeting you. Nice to meet you too. Bye. I'll leave you guys with thoughts, which are reflections that I write on Instagram. Sit with the universe. And you will find her batting her eyes and tickling your sides and playing footsies under the table. She's surprisingly seductive for the sacred breath of life. I think she's a love addict. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap.